Hello there. We're trying to keep Coral Chihuahua going, and so we draw your attention to the possibility of listening to us on Patreon for just a few quid a month. This also magically gets rid of the ads. That's Patreon with an E, patreon.com forward slash Coral Chihuahua. On with the app. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Coral Chihuahua. Do not adjust your sets. This is indeed Coral Chihuahua, and we're joined today by mezzo-soprano Claire Wilkinson because Harry hasn't made it out of bed yet. Good morning. Morning, everyone. Um, Harry, of course, is uh, uh, is probably doing something tremendously important, but uh, he's sort of stepped back from this one um, because he's not known as a consort singer. Although Harry absolutely has sung in consorts, including um, uh, groups that, that specialise in twentieth century repertoire. Um, we got a new jingle. Let's hear the new jingle. <laughs> Monteverdi that sounds like Stanford. Isn't isn't that exactly like Stanford? Even better than Stanford. When I sit there playing at the piano, I, I tend to add a few more fourths and sevenths. Um, but, but maybe that just gives you an idea of consort world, people who sit there playing their favourite bit of the Monteverdi, Monteverdi at the piano and adding fourths and sevenths. Welcome to Claire Wilkinson, um, Fagellini mezzo-soprano. Claire, you first uh, joined Di Fagellini singing Monteverdi, didn't you? That was quite a baptism of fire. Yes, that was uh, the full Monteverdi, book four. I remember turning up for my first rehearsal, having memorised the entire book. I was absolutely terrified. But you were ever so nice, and I uh, soon got used to you. No, I mean, we, we, but it was never an easy project, never a project that we got used to. Um, and we're going to move on. We're going to go straight into a, a, a bit of music to, to start with. Uh, this is book five, so this is much more grown up. This is your choice, Claire. Tell us what we're going to hear. Yes, this is Giotami by Monteverdi, of course. And it's something that we recorded in 2006 on our CD, Flaming Heart. It's an extremely poignant lament for lost love. And for me, this is the perfect expression of, of loss. Monteverdi really gets to the heart of it with his harmonies. And um, it's full of musical conversations between one singer and another. And for me, that's the heart of consort singing. Yeah, and for, for anyone listening, you know, wondering how this fits into music history, this is right at the time that opera is is appearing and Monteverdi's first opera follows two years later. And you can so clearly hear the text in this. There's very little polyphony. There's lots of call and response or sometimes response and call, but the text is so clear. Yeah. 
Lovely. Those lovely words at the end that I've made resound with the sound of my lamenting. It's a thing he does a lot, a three-part setting of something and then five voices just to give it extra. It's wonderful to hear that. Um, and, you know, I mean, we're recording these uh, this episode still in the midst of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. I haven't sung any Monteverdi for a long time. And, and hearing it, you realise just how much you miss singing some repertoire. Uh, and that leaves me with a massive urge to just go and get book five or book four off the shelf and just sing along with some of that. It's it's visceral stuff, isn't it? And and that maybe leads us into our first discussion. Why do we do it? What is consort singing? Isn't it just a small choir? We've all, you know, our, our groups are reg- regularly described as choirs, but they're not. They're consorts. They're one to a part. Ensembles, what do we call the course here up at York? A master's in solo voice ensemble singing. Why is it different, Claire? You've sung professionally as a soloist, as a zayman, um, but also as a consort singer. What is it that's really different? Well, I think the title of your MA course basically hits the nail on the head. It's a group of soloists. It's the best of both worlds. So you've got the individual expression of singing entirely by yourself in your own way, within reason. And uh, you've also got the discipline of singing together with other people. And it's uh, that combination that makes it particularly special and a special kind of skill. I find it like sort of um, sort of high level gaming, which, by the way, I've never done. But if I did, <laughs> if I had, it was it would feel like this. In that, uh, in that you're, you're driving along, and there are other people. Obviously, I don't actually drive on the motorway like this, but there are there are. I know we're getting myself a terrible mess. I'm suggesting that gate driving is like like, like high-level gaming. Um, like driving with no brakes. Well, it's it's totally, you're independent, but you're totally interdependent as well. And I suppose that the liveness about it is so exciting because if you're seeing next to me and we're seeing some Palestrina and you inflect a word in one way, if I then don't respond to that, then the piece is dead. So it's you never really know how it's going to happen. I mean, someone may, may take a little bit bit more time somewhere, but it's not about that. It's about the enunciation of text. It's about the colour that people bring to lines that you then have to respond to that is just so live. Exactly. And you don't have to blend with somebody else within your line. So you can really choose from moment to moment how you're going to express that text. I've always loved the, the, the sense of the what I call hyper listening. Uh, it's not to say that you don't listen when you're singing with you know in in larger choirs. Of of course you do, but that ability to respond in the absolute moment, uh, as you say, to what someone does, and you've got to be absolutely ears on stalks and you know ready to respond at, at, at the you know the least thing that somebody does, which then inspires you to 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 answer them. And the, the fascinating thing is that without a conductor, and as, as Harry's not here, we can say this, and Eamon and I will pretend that we don't conduct. I, I feel that as soon as there's a conductor, the focus is on the conductor. You're trying to give the conductor as a professional what, what they want. Um, and that means you're not thinking about expressing the words to the people who are listening in the same way. So although you can get past that in a choir, uh, the, the one to a part thing where you're all as a group thinking about the text... Uh, yes, is, I is completely everything. agree with that. I think that uh, the kind of setup we have, for me at least, is the perfect scenario where there's somebody guiding and leading who's clearly in charge, as it were, but it's a benign dictatorship. <laughs> so somebody is, is is shaping the proceedings, but not demanding the attention in performance. I think that's right. And uh, it's it's too easy when there is a conductor there to abdicate responsib- all responsibility for interpretation to them. And and, and I think that is that is a danger um, for those of us who sing in, in larger groups as well, that uh, that we let everything come 
through mm. and, and from the conductor. Um, and I love the sense of, of individual responsibility that you get in a consort. Eamon, what, what got you into this first? We're talking 90s, you were at university. What were you listening to at the time? Oh, well, I mean, all sorts. Uh, I think, as I've mentioned before, that one of the discs that was on uh, constantly was The Art of Monteverdi by E. Fagiolini. Um, oh, wonderful, wonderful collection. Um, and it was it was new it was new music to me. I hadn't really come across a lot of Monteverdi and the, the, the expressive uh, dissonance uh, and the harmony that he employs was just a, a whole new world. Um, but there was uh, another world opening up to me as I uh, attempted to start my music degree. Um, and one of the, I remember we had to write an essay uh, on sort of old manuscripts. And one of the manuscripts in question was the Old Hall manuscript, um, which sounds a bit like this. Gloria in excelsis extraordinary that's the Hilliard ensemble um, recorded in about 1990 uh, a disc uh, of a selection of pieces from the old hall manuscript um, I mean as a sound world it was it was completely new to me the sort of exotic nature of that 15th century music um, but I was struck then and I'm struck now by just how unbelievably tight the ensemble is uh, I mean their their tuning is just flawless um, but the thing that really strikes me is the is the rubato and the the rhythmic flexibility, which is really led uh, by the text shape, and you can really feel there uh, the top two parts. So that's um, Rogers, Covey, Crump, and John Potter, um, with Paul Hillier and one Mark Padmore uh, oh. singing the singing the two yeah. lower parts there. Um, but you can hear there that Rogers and John are just absolutely of one mind as the uh, as the text is passed between the two of them, um, and that comes from 
you know, years of experience uh, uh, of, of working together, singing together and, and just becoming sort of one musical mind, if you like. It's incredibly virtuosic, and I'd just point out that if you're singing that kind of music, I haven't done very much of it, but the lines are really relentless, so it sounds easy, but it's really not. Yeah, it gets through the entire Gloria text in, in two minutes, uh, which reminds I mean, there is this concept, isn't there, in medieval music that the mass movements are meant to take roughly the same period of time. I couldn't quote you a source on that. I just remember it from, funnily enough, exactly the same period as you, Eamon, studying medieval music so that the Kyrie and the Agnus Dei are very, very slow moving and uh, the, the, the Creed and the, the Gloria had to get through a lot of text in a lot of time. And I remember listening to medieval music at that time. I got uh, totally into uh, Macho, uh, Mestre Notre Dame, the, uh, the Virile, all the little songs in old French. And, and it is the sound world often that, that hits us, isn't it? And we're, we're very lucky in Renaissance music. We've got just types of music that sound so... So very different. You can do them in the same concert with the same uh, with the same performers. Did you did you have a repertoire, Claire? You read classics, of course, didn't you? I did read classics, but I was first and foremost a choral scholar, so I was uh, rather a remiss classicist, I'm afraid. <laughs> but I was busy listening to a lot of music at that point as well, especially the Cardinals' music bird edition, which I collected avidly as they came out. And uh, I was also busy listening to Gardner's Bach CDs. Uh, the Passions, which I uh, could only afford occasionally, but um, they were great influences on me. And uh, all of that incredible bird, he's one of my top composers too. I suppose our generation, um, plopping me into your generation for a second there, is, you know, we, we were still <laughs> buying music. Uh, we, we didn't have the whole world uh, and his wife to listen to on Spotify or, or whatever. Uh, so we would really listen to a CD and we would become quite passionate about something. Amy, you mentioned listen to the full Monteverdi. Uh, certainly in the 90s, after I left university, I, I would go to a lot of concerts in London. The 16, absolutely went to lots of their concerts. Uh, Talis Scholars, the Consort of Music, which was the really f f uh, foremost uh, ensemble uh, of, of, of 16th century secular music at the time. There was no Concerto Italiano, alla Veneziana. Um, I went to lots of their concerts. But strangely, when I went back home, I'd be listening to totally different things but still in the consort world uh, and this is a track perhaps if you could just play the first i don't know minute or 20 so this is the singers unlimited i heard he sang a good song i heard he had a style and so i came to see him to listen for a while Listen for a while And there he was, this young boy A stranger to my eyes Strumming my pain with his fingers Singing my life with his words Killing Softly with his song, killing me softly with his song, telling my whole life with his words, killing me softly, killing me softly.
Now that's that's totally produced. I think and um, pe- listeners will correct me if I'm wrong. There's just four of them, so it's highly multi-tracked. But fascinating thing because of course it's close mic. You can absolutely hear the text, which is you know something we could we could come on to. Not always possible in in large halls. And, and then also it, the grain of those voices, yes, incredibly sensuous. Yeah, and then it gets. I say it's highly produced. It gets to the end and it does this. With his words, killing me softly. And that takes me back to living in Brixton in the 1990s, uh, Christmas dinner parties with David Wickham and people coming around, Robin Blaze, Gary Cooper, oh. and listening to that that kind of stuff. Um, and just totally different from my world because it's very, very produced. Now, of course, we've all been sitting here in lockdown, getting into that world. Uh, groups like the Swingles, much more used to it. They've just released a fantastic new track. Um, and so I suppose it's it's... Nothing like what I actually go to consort music for, which is to sing with other people, because you can imagine them listening with headphones and recording track track with a click track, laying it down, but absolutely captivating at the same time. And let's not underestimate the skill uh, required to be able to sing, you know, that well in tune. Yeah, yeah, yeah. incredibly virtuosic yes. again. Are we going to talk about tuning? No, let's not talk about tuning. We could talk about tuning. <laughs> I'll just, get, I'll just get my can of worms from the <laughs> shelf over here. Yeah, so. Well, it's just, I mean, the, the, the fascinating, Claire talked at the beginning about the, the disciplines. I mean, there are so many different disciplines. And I notice having taught this master's in York for the last few years, one year we're just obsessed with tuning and trying to get this, you know, people who haven't done this sort of tuning, I suppose, well, why don't you just sing it in tune, which is pretty much how I did the first 25 years of my professional life. Yeah, just sing in tune. I got a good ear. But uh, if you sing with organs and pianos, the whole issue of the fact that they've had to have their tuning bastardized so that they can play in every single uh, every single key, and you have to retrain your ear. And that's one thing. But th- the longer I run the course, the more I actually get back to the business of, we come to this as singers and we're presented with a piece of music and we read that. And if we can sing the right notes in the right time with a sort of choral scholar's eyebrow of expression, you know, that's already quite a big achievement. But the audience doesn't care about any of that they want to be expressed that they want to be entertained they want to understand what's in the composer's head and for that to to make sense as a piece of poetry and although we need all these skills the actual performance skills uh, are so much more akin to a leader singer it seems to me Yes, the thing about singing leader is that the personality of the individual performer is also very important. And that's another thing that's absolutely vital to an audience. They want to see who you are as a singer as well. Not only what the composer wanted, but who you are. 
That's right. And being able to wear your heart on your sleeve uh, and, you know, expose yourself in, a, in an emotional sense. Um, you know, again, this is something that you don't always see in larger in larger groups with, you know, in what we would call a choir. Again, it goes back to that idea of, of everything being focused on the conductor and it coming through them. Not that I'm saying that I think that's the right way of, of going about it. And one thing that Harry always um, says to us in the 16 is that, you know, our faces have got to be alive and, and communicating uh, what, you know, what the music is about. But you know, that just doesn't work in a consort. If you're, if you, if you are not emotionally connected to the music, it reads so clearly. Uh, and with a, you know, within a group of five singers, you you need to be feeling about the music the same way to a certain extent. So the conversations that take place in preparation of the scores, when you're talking about you know what the poetry actually means, those have been some of the most enlightening moments that I've found working with Fagiolini. I've, I've loved that that sense of uh, of discovery that 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 we undergo when we are approaching a, a new poem and a new piece of music. Yes, it's about taking the time for detail, isn't it? Which is something that we often have the luxury of with Vi Fagiolini, talking about text and exactly how to pronounce it, getting experts in where we need them and exactly what it means so that we're coming, we're singing from the same hymn sheet as it weren't. Although always yeah. slightly nervous of the experts after that occasion when I got a, a Venetian a specialist to come and help us with the Venetian project and we, we learned to do Venetian pronunciation for the whole thing recorded the CD only to discover afterwards that she had a lisp that she hadn't told us about <laughs> <laughs> I'd forgotten that it's just Billy, Billy Purefoy that reminds me about that uh, uh, on occasion the um the, the the watching the personalities I mean it does seem to be that there is a certain school that likes the reserved approach and not wearing your heart on your sleeve and I suppose, you know, Fagiline's been a little bit of a reaction against that. Uh, and, you know, there are different ways to different ways to to crumble the cookie. But I, I find that audiences, certainly live audiences, they want to meet you on the stage. They want to know your performance and repressing that seems an odd way to do it. But maybe it's not not repressing it. Certainly I'm finding with my current MA group in York that we're we're, we're really starting with the with the with the issue that you have to emote and you have to explain the text and be interesting from the start. It can't be an add-on. If you don't hardwire it into the way you sing, then then it's ne it's only going to feel like an extra afterwards. But that's quite exhausting to rehearse like that. Yes, it is. It's very intensive. And as you say, there's no point in saying, and now mean it. You have to come from a deeper point than that. I think it's a question of priorities, going back to what you were saying. Every group has their different priorities, and for some groups, the sonority and perhaps a, a meditative sound is what they're going for, and, and that's also something very beautiful for a certain repertoire. Um, but we're coming more from a dramatic, text-based point of view. Well, if you're looking for the comparison to a leader singer, you know, if a leader singer stands up and is not emotionally connected to the music then no one's going to be impressed by that. And I think I think you're right, Claire. It's a question of repertoire uh, in some cases that, you know, an overtly dramatic approach won't work, of course. If you're singing a piece of Palestrina, it's very yes. different to singing a piece of Monteverdi. But the, the, with the Palestrina, it's about creating something between you. It's not so much about putting your own stamp on it, which it can be in other pieces. In fact, most of the time, it's about creating something together. It doesn't have to be a dramatic sound, but it can be a, an incredibly intense sound. Claire, you, you're going to play us something by uh, Trinity Baroque, another group you sung with. 
Yes, absolutely. This is from a CD called Rites of Spring, a 1996 CD. Um, and this was before I joined the group. It's Julian Podger's group. And I, I believe he's also been a regular guest with Fagiolini. Mm. And um, this is a piece called Francine Rosine by Claude Lejeune, who lived 1528 to 1600, from his collection Le Printemps, The Spring, published in 1603. And um, in the middle of the, the 17th century, sorry, the 16th century, there was a lot of discussion going on in France about how to set poems. And the poets who were writing at the time, wanted to elevate French to the level of the classical languages. So they started writing new poems in classical meters. And um, the composers of the time responded by setting these very transparent, beautiful poems uh, in these ancient meters. And this particular one is a lovely little love song. It's incredibly graceful and delicate. And it just sounds like a beautiful tune. And you wouldn't know about all that incredible preparation that's gone into making this in ancient meter. lovely there's one word that comes to my mind it's translucent and how we are seduced by the sound of music i'm thinking of that 
<clears throat> Beecham quote that was our byline for Talis in Wonderland about 10 years ago when we were doing that. The English don't like music, just the noise it makes, um, which is very unfair on the English, really. Um, and he was thinking about, uh, you know, big orchestral repertoire. But we do hear the sound first, don't we? And that was the thing with the Singers Unlimited track. We hear the sound before we hear all the detail. And you were careful to talk about text. But I was just thinking about all the, how, lo the, how lovely the high flats were and how beautifully it was tuned. And with Rachel Elliott on the top. Rachel and, Elliott. And yes, Julian, with her rolled R's on those top G's, is it? Yes. And, and Julian Podger, who else was singing in that? Not you. Kate. No, not me. It was Rachel Elliott, Kate Hamilton on mezzo, mm. Tim Massa singing alto, Julian, then Tom Guthrie and Simon Turnell. Tom Guthrie, you see, he gets everywhere, doesn't he? He's like a bad penny. Just where, <laughs> wherever you look, there is Tom Guthrie in every... Jolly nice bad penny. Absolutely. Um, how? Because I don't sing with, with other groups because no one ever asks, although I am available. Um, what, what's, what's it like, Claire, when you go and work with another group? What do you value when you work with other groups that maybe you don't get with Fadge so much? Gosh, well, um, going to work with Trinity Baroque is quite similar to working with Fadge in some ways because they share a certain approach to the text and there's a lot of chatting about uh, words and pronunciations and shall I say discussions rather than arguments um, but it's always fascinating and I always learn something new and I love the fact that Julian is is bilingual and just like you actually so they you can always learn something new about these languages from experts um, and they also are a group that take a lot of time to rehearse, often in somebody's living room, which is my favourite place for rehearsing. That's that's an interesting one, isn't it? For those listening, people listening from around the world, the professional UK scene doesn't really allow for much rehearsal. Rehearse one day, concert the next. Uh, in extreme cases, what's your phrase, Eamon? Uh, sight reading from memory. That's right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that one as well. Um uh, and so this, I mean, we had th th nearly three days to rehearse from our Life in London Monteverdi concert, which felt like an untold uh, luxury. Um, and uh, tomorrow, in fact, I shall be going to London to rehearse. Sadly, neither with you two because you weren't free or we couldn't get you out of Belgium, Claire, um, yeah, uh, to do some Charpentier and Howells. And we will have uh, two days to rehearse, which is which is lovely. But sometimes you don't have the time for, for discussion. Uh, and the time for those nights sleep and simply the best rehearsal technique in the world with good musicians, which is to have another go at it. Claire, tell me, in your experience, do you find that other groups spend as much time talking about what position to stand in as we do in Fagiolini? <laughs> what? Um, probably not. But they certainly don't spend as much time talking about words. It's, it's more often about sonorities and, uh, yes, there's perhaps less detailed work on the text. Go on, and name, less, name and shame, Eamon. Well, I was thinking about less focus on cake, actually. Um, <laughs> cake is um, a perfectly good rehearsal incentive. If there's it a cake is, you're there, quite right. Uh, it kept, the whole of the Strigio 40-part mass was recorded on a, on a sugar high by the Fagiolini Friends organisation bringing in non-stop cake for six days of rehearsal and recording. And I'm convinced that the, that's the only reason we got it onto one CD, because everything was slightly faster than it should be. <laughs> we were all on a high. Well, if you've got coffee and cake in the room, it smells yes. nice, everyone's happy and they sting better. Let's let's talk briefly just about singers we admire. And I'm going to start off here. Um, where singers... Uh, I admire obviously you two and and everyone who's ever worked for Fadge. Jimmy Holiday, there's a there's a, a singer that I admire. I was just listening to uh, the Adrian Williams uh, 
a piece recently. And Jimmy, I know, is a man who has a loud bottom B, and that is extraordinarily rare. But there yeah. he is singing loud, fabulous operatic top E's. That's a two and a half octave usable range. That's extraordinary. Yeah, I can remember um, watching uh, someone watching Jimmy from the wings and saying that he's worth his weight in gold. Uh, and given that he's quite a big chap, uh, that shows you quite how valuable he is. Um, but yeah, it's you can't put a price on that uh, having that sort of resonance uh, as, at the bottom of the texture. It gives you so much to to work with and provides such a great support for those above. And speaking as the person who's you know who's often next to the low bass, that you know that when you've got that sonority alongside you, uh, in terms of you know knowing where to put your low thirds, uh, it's a great bonus to have that there. We had Chris. Adams, didn't we, for uh, for Talis in Wonderland with you, Eamon, and then uh, Nick Smith, which wouldn't be to everyone's taste vocally, but it was. I had some amazing comments after that because it was just an extraordinary, rich, well-produced sound between the three of you. It was a great fundament to that project. I think that's right, and that's always been one of the joys for me and Fagellini is that I've never felt like I've had to compromise vocally. I mean, there are vocal gymnastics that one has to go through to sing some of these parts, uh, especially some of the, you know, the more high-lying Monteverdi, those those C4 parts. Um, but I've always felt like I've been allowed to sing how I wanted to. Claire, sing as, sing as you admire? Oh, well, now we've just heard Rachel Elliott. She has to come top of the list. Of course, she's been in Fadge and still comes back occasionally, I think. Incredibly clean singing at the top of a texture. And just like having that cleanliness in the bottom of the texture, I often stand next to the soprano. And uh, she and Anna, absolutely amazing in that respect. And there's some jolly good countertenors out there too, aren't there? No. <laughs> Said nobody ever. <laughs> there's Robin Blaze and David Gould on those Cardinals music CDs. Yeah, well, David Gould, I mean, you you, you just, because he, you know, he had a, a sort of another career, you you just you're listening to that Gaudi Glorioso of the Cardinals music, and there's this ravishing sound, and there he is, and, you, and one could forget about that. Well, uh, Peter Gritton, who's been singing in Fadge yeah. a little bit for you while you've not been able to get across, uh, you know, a man like Roderick Williams who has a number of different careers going for him, but just the most ravishing and unusual sound. And speaking of other careers, how about James Gilchrist? Well, yes. Uh, <laughs> James, I mean, is there anything incredible he, wordsmith? Anything he can't do. Is he also? Is he half German? Is that right? If so, I didn't know. I believe so. Apologies, James, if I understand, I've got that wrong. Uh, certainly, when someone like he or Nicholas Mulroy is doing a, or indeed Julian Podger is doing an evangelist, you get the syntax with the words, don't you? It's not just beautifully pronounced. It's it's completely understood. Um, I think James never quite got over being asked to sing very very peculiar. Uh, carnival masks by Fagellini in the uh, in the two thousands. <laughs> he gave me back his music afterwards, and there are all sorts of strange hieroglyphs and drawings of of what it felt like to sing a high tenor part. Maybe we should drop one of those in. Eamon, you're gonna you're gonna you've chosen some Monteverdi to play. Yes, well, talking about singers that we admire, and not to turn this into an E. Fagellini loving, um, but this is uh, Longe Date, which is the penultimate uh, madrigal from Monteverdi's fourth book, and therefore the the penultimate madrigal in our show, the full Monteverdi, uh, and it's the most it's a 
beautiful poem. For me, this was always the, the emotional heart of the show. And uh, it begins uh, with the tenor, in this case, Nicholas Mulroy, uh, on a high G, um, with this extraordinary poem, an anonymous, uh, by an anonymous poet, Far from you, my heart, I'm consumed with sorrow, tenderness and love. But return now, and if fate wills me still to suffer when near you, let your beautiful dear eyes shine and sparkle, so that I burn and die from them, and I will die happy. It's that um, extraordinary, graceful ornament from Matthew at the end there, which I tried to imitate uh, a number of times. And in the end, I just gave up because I could never make it sound uh, as effortless and beautiful as, as he does there. And so gentle as well, the way he does it. It's just absolutely from the heart, isn't it? It, it contains the, the ache that's in that poetry. Wonderful singing from the whole group there, but you know, talking about the importance 
uh, of a of a resonant low bass. Wonderful singing from Giles Underwood. There, you can really give him the you know, the fundament to the whole group. Yes, and, and I always thought you know we've been lucky in our basses in Evangelini because they're the sort of Rolls Royce under the whole thing, and to have basses that sing with such line. I mean, our current bass, Giles Gibbs, that's bass. He's a basically a, a melodist. And it's the same with with Matthew and Giles. They're never just putting in the bottom notes. Let's credit all the singers there. Karis Lane, uh, our own Claire Wilkinson, Nicholas Mulroy, Matthew Brook and Giles Underwood. Hearing that takes me right back to the Amadeus Centre and all the mad things that uh, John Labouchardier made us do in rehearsals for that piece. Yes. what a, I mean, that was an extraordinary project to start your Fagellini career with. Well, yes, in some ways, everything else has seemed easy by comparison afterwards. <laughs> Claire, I can remember talking to you in St Mary's Warwick when we were doing a, um, a, a programme there with Ex Cathedra, and you, I hadn't met you that many times before. Remember, you were telling me that you were about to start this project with Eve Fagellini at this staging of the fourth book of Madrigals, and I was so envious. I thought, oh, God, that just sounds amazing, and couldn't believe my good fortune when, you know, a little while later, I was able to come in and... Uh, and you take over from Matthew uh, and do you know, over 30 of those shows. A, ter- a terrifying project to come in on once it was already set up because you couldn't have those weeks of rehearsal um, making the making the, the characters. That was, I think, what one of John's most impressive achievements to me, not being a stage director and seeing this, was that nearly all the work was on preparing the characters so that whatever they did in the show was therefore correct because it was in character. It wasn't about staging the show. I mean, yes, it was which side of the table you were going to go in each new venue, of course, that (laughs) took forever. But it was about preparing character um, so that whatever you did would would be like that. Look, we talked about um, singers we admire. Um, Top consort moments, Claire, any particular outside the full month of anything that you remember with Fadge or other groups? Yes. Oh, gosh, so many. Where to begin? I think perhaps one of my ultimate favourites was being up in the lantern of Ely Cathedral doing How Like an Angel and singing Talis Gaude. With Julian with, Podger uh, and Chris Adams, the three of you up there. That's right. What an extraordinary thing that is, yes. And to get there, we had to take our life in our hands walking along the roof of that incredible building. And be down two minutes later for the next piece. That's, yes. <laughs> so I had to hurry along the roof. Yeah. And then at the end of that show, the Williams Hymn to Awe. That's also an incredible piece. Yes, yes. Eamon? Um well, Claire mentioned Bird earlier and the Cardinals' music. Uh, I was lucky enough to do an all-Bird programme with them, which included the Great Service, which is not something that one would uh, you know, necessarily think of as being as a concert piece, but it was um, just a brilliant opportunity to sing that music and uh, in what is arguably you know, the correct pitch. Uh, so uh, you know, perfectly sitting baritone parts, uh, which are great fun. Um but I'm going to hold you up on that, Eamon. I can, I can say instead of the correct pitch, let's say the correct voicing, because we can't be sure about the pitch, but but the, but the the voicing is the crucial thing. So tenors instead of counter tenors on some of those parts, it makes all the difference, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly so. Yeah, quite right. Um, and from a Fagellini perspective, um, singing in a, in a Schlosser castle in Germany somewhere, an, an all Monteverdi programme again, um, and we sang uh, Orche il Cere la Terra um, from book eight. And I just remember just it was it felt like the sort of perfect synthesis of the players and singers coming together and just a wonderful setting um it's 
it was a, a program that we that we toured quite a lot, uh, which I loved doing absolutely everywhere. But that particular performance uh, in the castle was mm. particularly memorable. Mm. Speaking of very intimate venues, I think my 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 favourites are the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse, where I've had some lovely experiences with Fadge and Alamire, and also Tenebrae in its small form, uh, often candle lit. It's this beautiful small. Mm miniature theatre as part of the Globe Theatre there and also the Limonaya in Villa Itati. Oh yes, 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 yes. yes. Uh, very special oh, experience yes. singing Victoria there, the Alma Redemptoris. And sometimes people right in front of And you. sometimes we uh, we do an ensalada by Matteo da Fleccia in which we need to uh, we had to exorcise someone and we, we take someone up from the audience. I remember doing that once and fixing in advance who it would be, but not telling Anna. And the person we, we got up <laughs> was a certain uh, very beautiful Italian actor with whom uh, she had, and I have to be very careful my words here, with whom she <laughs> she had had a ride on the back of his bike out of a concert, out of a concert once and hadn't then seen him for 15 years, but had talked about the ride for a while afterwards <laughs> and suddenly found herself exercising up on stage. I'm, I'm going to choose the South African adventure back in the 1990s, Simunyi, um, because it changed us as a group, uh, singing with a group that had totally different... Well, I mean, we think of ourselves as a text group and you know an emotional group, but I think they showed us what that really meant. Uh, and here's a piece in Istatamia style that actually Fadge sang as part of How Like an Angel, the, the thing with the uh, with the Australian circus group Circa. Uh, let's hear Um Sindisi. Yeah. 
Ah, recorded live in Soweto in a Seventh-day Adventist church. That's the Staza Chorale, Seventh-day Adventist Student Association, directed by Mokale Koping, singing very, very live. That's the congregation joining in at the end in Bekatlamini's Um Sindisi, a song about the crucifixion. Yeah, the spontaneity of that is something that really can't be imitated by us particularly, yeah. I think. Well, as a group... It's not a performance. As a group of... Oxfordy types in a church and singing Wilkes's I heard a voice, hallelujah. So politely uh, uh, singing away and and they would all scream when 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 we sang hallelujah. <laughs> and it just changed the way where you sing. I remember coming back from that tour and doing Gibbons O Clap Your Hands with all the sort of dance moves that we'd done over there in Dartington Hall, which looked a little bit odd, but there you go. Uh, these, these are the, the great influences. By the way, we made a documentary about that, which we only released a few few months ago. If you go onto Vimeo, and or actually probably the easiest thing is to go to ifagellini.com and look up Simuni, S-I-M-U-N-Y-E. And there's now a little 40-minute uh, documentary about that project. You say it's a, a piece about the crucifixion, but you can hear the enjoyment and the love of it and, and, and fun. I mean, that is, that's the word, isn't it? And I think that's an, you know, another element just in terms of consorts of what I've had with Fagellini is a huge amount of fun. Not always planned, um, but you know, thinking of uh, some of the magical comedies that we've done, playing Il Gioco de Loca and um, the game of the goose, things going wrong with the board or counters falling off or Anna getting stuck on a bicycle pump, uh, you know, these sorts of things. <laughs> Shall we just leave the audience to imagine that one? It's not far off, actually. I do remember doing that at one of those shows, the um, uh, a magical comedy with a big picnic basket and doing it in Santiago and the next night after a horrendous journey doing it in Scarborough and Nicholas Mulroy playing the waiter at one point running around this uh, this harpsichord which was sort of in the centre of things because it was in the round and falling flat on his face and we were all tired and emotional by that stage. It's very difficult to keep it going. Hey, look, we had a we had a competition. We had a little competition on on uh, social media the last few days, and I chose ten of my favourite tracks. Uh, I chose no Monteverdi ones actually. I set myself that, uh, and asked uh, anyone who could be bothered. So it's completely unscientific what their favourite track was, and we have a winner. Uh, from things that included uh, Tompkins, uh, Too Much I Once Lamented, uh, In Ecclesis by Gabrielli from our 1612 um, Italian Vespers recording, Love is a Babe by Adrian Williams, all these things. But the winner was Daniel Lazure from his Song of Songs, Le Jardin Clos. Uh, and isn't that extraordinary that here we are with a composer that many people listening may not have heard of, uh, being chosen as the favourite track. I was slightly taken aback by it, but maybe some of the people voted um, have been involved in performances. I don't know. It's, I think it's one of the great 20th century uh, pieces of choral music. It's underdone. It's, it's quite difficult. It's for 12 voices, and you need at least you know two to a part, although Fadge did do it one to a part, didn't we, once? Um, yes. Have you both sung this piece? Yes, uh, I sang it first with um, with Ex Cathedra, uh, and I, I think you're right. It's not it's not that well known, um, but it's a piece that once you hear it, or certainly once you perform it, you never forget it, and it immediately goes uh, you know very high up on your list of of favourite pieces. Yes, from my point of view, I'd just say that for a sacred piece, it's just the sexiest music you can imagine. Well, apparently, he'd be rather pleased to hear you see, uh, to, to say that, because I had a letter from his son uh, uh, quite recently, um, uh, February, something like that, who'd only just come across the recording. And he said that his father was quite ambivalent about whether it should be read um, uh 
from, from a sacred or a secular perspective. Let's hear a little bit of the text. And you should really hear this in the voice of Jim Broadbent playing the Spanish interpreter in the first episode, <laughs> first episode of Black Adder, because it goes, uh, Behold, thou art fair, my beloved. Your eyes are like doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats. <laughs> now, we always think that sounds silly, but actually I had a, a fantastic clarity moment in the Yorkshire Dales a couple of years ago uh, and it was spring and the, um, I was on one side of a dale and on the other side were a, a flock of freshly shorn sheep okay so their skin was very smooth and why would your hair be like that well because in a group when they move very fast together and the light is changing if the light catches them it, it really does look like blonde hair sort of flapping in the wind. So it's a very strange cultural reference. But um, I've got a picture somewhere of the Literalist's Guide to the Song of Songs with a woman drawn with this sort of, you know, um, ebony uh, neck and, and hair of goats. But um, there you go. A shimmering on the slopes of Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn after being washed. That's quite specific, isn't it? <laughs> um, your cheeks are like two halves of pomegranates. Your two breasts are like, it's got French now, your two breasts are like two young rows, R-O-E-S, that are twins. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse, with a single glance. And this fabulous, fabulous 12-part writing uh, with major minor chords, uh, incredibly melodic, but uh, uh, listeners will, will recognize the beginning of this because the opening couple of bars, the second inversion chords, were one of the jingles a few weeks back. Uh, Claire, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Lovely to have you here. Um, Harry, thank you so much for having me. Harry will be back. Uh, Eamon will probably be back as well. But uh, we'll play you out now with Daniel Lezure from his Cantique des de Cantiques, the Song of Songs, The Enclosed Garden, Le Jardin Clos.
Oh, what a chord. What a chord. Major, minor, eat your heart out. Fabulous. Coral Chihuahua is brought to you by Ifagellini and the 16 and also Claire and produced by Perseus the 16, Ifagellini and Polyphonic Films. It's supported using public funding by the National Lottery through Arts Council England. And this episode was further sponsored by Bridget Rosewell. And if you'd like to sponsor an episode or if your choir would like to sponsor uh, an episode, uh, please get in contact with us through either ensemble. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just before you go, another reminder to try listening on Patreon, which costs just a few pounds per month. Or, if you prefer, you can very simply make a one-off donation. You can actually do either via coralchihuahua.com. Thanks.